Welcome to Here and Now with Janan Shahid. You are listening to the news from communities of Kingston on CFRC 101.9 FM. We bring you voices not likely to be heard anywhere but on your campus radio every week. As usual, Here and Now, your weekly community news program is starting the weekly news updates with the local labor news. Ford government is pushing a privatization agenda that threatens the survival of the LCBO. With Doug Ford's plans, alcohol sales will be expanded to corner stores, big box stores, and grocery stores. OPSU, the union of the LCBO, says Doug Ford is putting private interests above public good. The province's decision to double the number of LCBO convenience stores by the end of this year is defended by the policymakers themselves as an attempt to increase customer convenience. OPSI Local 497, on the other hand, draws attention to the profits that private owners are making. Teresa Graham, the president of OPSI Local, says 5 to 10% per every dollar spent goes to the owners while traditional LCBO stores channel the profits to building better schools, hospitals, and other valuable public services. LCBO has 209 convenience outlets across Ontario, and the government plans to add another 200 in smaller communities by the end of this year. In their campaign to keep LCBO public, OPSU says the privatizing is not only putting the jobs at LCBO at risk, but also jeopardizes public safety by IDing people who are underage and challenging people who could be intoxicated. LCBO workers also contribute to public safety. According to the research that the union refers to, since grocery stores were allowed to sell alcohol, there were over 24,000 more people admitted to emergency rooms than in the two years before. They argue that this puts pressure on healthcare system, increases wait times and hallway medicine. This week on October 30th, OPSI 497 is organizing two anti-privatization rallies in Belleville. From the LCBO workers, we are now turning to the education workers in the secondary schools. As you all might remember, after months of tension between the provincial government and the educators, a workers' strike was narrowly avoided this month. Recently, the Minister of Education issued a statement that would reduce the class size from 28 to 25. Currently, average class size in Ontario is 22. At first, what government proposes to do seems like a positive development. However, Harvey Bischoff, the president of Ontario's Secondary Teachers Federation, in a counterstatement to the ministers, says that the proposal made by the minister is worse than Ford government's original plan to hike class size to 28. OSSTF argues that the plan of the Ford government is to increase the class size from 22 to 25, and this will mean 5,000 teachers will lose jobs. With this plan, they argue, the government not only keeps the class size minimum at 25, but also removes locally enforceable class size caps. The Union of Educators says this means in practice there will be no limits on the size of classes into which Ontario students could be sequestered, undermining the learning environment in Ontario schools. So 
the negotiations between educators and the government are heated again. We will keep updating you about the development in the process of bargain. Stay tuned to Here and Now on CFRC 101.9 FM. Here and Now will now give a short brief about the federal election results in Kingston. Mark Gerritsen, the incumbent liberal candidate, was re-elected on October the 21st, winning 46% of 66,700 votes cast in Kingston and the islands. He had gotten 55% of the votes in 2015 elections. In his address given at the Clover Leaf Lanes on Monday night, Gerritsen said with the Liberals forming a minority government now, finding support from other parties will be important this term. He said the Liberal government would move forward with the promise of a national pharmacare, a plan endorsed by the NDP as well, stronger protection for the environment, ban on single-use plastics. On local terms, Gerritsen pledged to support the city council's efforts to improve the availability of affordable housing. He promised to work with the city council and their strategic plan to get more affordable housing built in Kingston. The city of Kingston has a special housing task force that tries to address the crisis in Kingston. We have reached the Kataraqui Union of Tenants, a campaign group that advocates the affordable social housing in Kingston. Here and now, your community news program has reached out to Doug Yearwood, one of the founders of Kataraqui Union of Tenants. Hi, Doug Yearwood. Welcome to our program. Thanks very much for having me. Although it's a pretty new group, I think you produced some materials, you did some reach out campaigns. Uh, and if I'm not wrong, you also had a meeting with the mayor's housing task force, right? How was the response and what do you think their perspective on the uh, concerns you share? Yeah, so that was one of the, the first things that our group was able to do. And I think that was only a month or two after we had formed. We came into contact with the city. We were asked by someone there whether or not we would be interested in sitting down with the mayor's uh, housing task force. And after some deliberation, you know, we were concerned that we might be used as a tool to sort of legitimize ongoing gentrification and issues of affordability here in the city. We decided that ultimately it would be good to sit down and, and have face-to-face conversation with two representatives. So we sat down with Mary Rita Holland and, and Ted Sue, who are both city councillors. And, and that was an okay thing because we know obviously the housing task force is in and of itself self-problematic. Um, it's comprised largely of developers and uh, capitalists who are by their very nature sort of interested in continuing with uh, developing new housing projects for their own gain. And so these are the people who have been tasked with solving Kingston's housing crisis. So the same people who've helped create it. So, you know, there's this contradiction there. And, and so we were willing to sit down with Mary Rita and, and Ted and, and had it out with them, uh, aired our concerns about the direction of housing and, and whether or not the task force was sort of up for actually getting to the nitty-gritty and solving these problems. And and that was uh, an interesting evening. You know, we, mm-hmm. we came away with no firm commitments from them, which we expected, but we were able to, maybe if it was just a moment of catharsis or whatever, we were able to sort of air our grievances and, and let them know exactly what our thoughts were, what our concerns were, and, and offer some suggestions for them to consider and, and how they might be willing to respond to the housing crisis here in 
Kingston. What do you think the solution is? So what should the cities be doing or city of Kingston be doing, at least to um, alleviate the problem? Yeah. There's going to be a, a tension between sort of stopgap solutions and, and more long-term solutions yeah. that are possible. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, from my own research, what you can see is that issues of affordability Uh, became more prominent following the decline in social housing and, and the retrenchment of those responsibilities from federal to local authorities in, in the 1990s. I think one thing that everyone in the group would be in favor of is, is an increase in spending on social housing. Um, it seems like every party uh, during this election cycle has spoken in some ways to uh, issues of housing affordability. It's something that millions of Canadians are grappling with each year. I've, I've read that there's 300,000 people across Canada who spend at least one night a year homeless. But many of these solutions are sort of rooted in the same contradictory formulation that caused this crisis. And that is, you know, handouts to corporations who are responsible to develop. And of course, corporations have a mandate to uh, maximize profit as much as possible, mm -hmm. return this money to, to investors and, and that sort of thing. You know, we're concerned about these uh, arrangements, these P3s, the public-private partnerships, and, and, you know, a lot of these solutions seem to orient themselves around these sort of private, delegating private authorities mm -hmm. with the, the responsibility yeah. to solve this problem. Yeah. So I think, you know, increase in social housing is something that uh, everyone would favor. I think an increase in co-op housing is, is something that more people would, would get behind. There's things like, you know, instituting stronger rent controls as a stopgap solution. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that can be done. You yeah. know, each, each situation is going to be different. Yeah. You know, how you're going to address and solve these problems yeah. depends on, you know, the mun municipality or, or area that you're concerned about mm -hmm. um, because there's all this uneven development and, and particular sort of regulatory frameworks that guide each decision that, that is made. But, you know, there are some general things that can be done that would immediately and, and materially help a lot of people. You problematize, of course, these public-private partnerships and the mentality maybe uh, that is in the center of such projects when they are presented as solutions to the housing crisis. And I think it has a lot to do with the part of the maybe low-income groups or working classes that's suffer most uh, from this housing crisis. Housing crisis is, of course, influencing the population disproportionately. Um, what segment of the population, you know, like is influenced most? And uh, when we think of trade union movement, labor movement, and they, that, that the relation of that uh, segment of the population with the organized working class, what connections are there or what discontinuities or disconnections are there? And that's an interesting question, right? So uh, in studying Harringate and what's going on with the development in Timber Creek, uh, the, the company that's trying to gentrify the neighborhood, Harringate, it was interesting to find out that one of the principal investors is Manitoba teachers, right? So these are people who are represented by trade unions who are ostensibly, you know, progressive, looking towards the future, uh, guiding the youth in, in their journey uh, as, as young people. But they're, you know, one of the principal actors, one of these institutional investors helping drive gentrification. So, of course, yeah, I mean, we're seeing a, a big segmentation amongst the working class. And in general, I mean, this isn't to sort of dump on trade unions, because, of course, I think they're important, they're necessary. Um, but I don't think they should be idealized either. And, and so, you know, you don't see a ton of buy-in, I think, from unions on this issue to date, because it is an issue that 
while it affects some of their members, I think, you know, the, in general, and, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong here, but you see a lot more people who are into home ownership or who have home, home ownership and aren't renters or who aren't tenants. This is perhaps changing. I think, you know, the, the people who are most exploited are these people in precarious and, and flexible labor positions. I'm seeing in Chicago right now with the, the teacher strike that's ongoing there, one of the issues that they're continually raising is that housing needs to be made more affordable because they have so many of their students who are homeless or struggling with affordability at home. So many teachers are underpaid and, and are also struggling to make uh, make rent. Um, so this is an issue that trade unions are starting to take up. Uh, I haven't really seen it manifest too much here in the, the Canadian context, but the people who are most affected are those who aren't represented by trade unions. Mm-hmm. And there's an antagonism within the working class there mm-hmm. that I think needs to work itself out, where maybe trade unions start to look at where their investments are going on their pension funds and, and everything like that. So there is sort of this unevenness between the mm-hmm. sides, and, and the people who end up being most affected are those who are you know in the service class, who mm-hmm. um, maybe work in restaurants or are baristas, um, people who don't generally have a ton of representation or, or um, support from unions. And, you know, I can speak to my own experience here on Labor Day. Uh, I was trying to distribute a bunch of pamphlets and, and get everyone interested in, in what we were doing with the Gatorockway Union of Tenants. And people just weren't that interested. It, it wasn't the tenant crowd, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to perhaps May Day, where you mm-hmm. see, you know, the uh, more radical elements of the working class mm-hmm. walking and marching through the streets and lots of people affected with issues of housing affordability. I've, I've gone to the last three or four May Day events and in each and every year, housing affordability was something that was discussed. Well, on Labor Day, I didn't really hear too much yeah. about it aside from my own speech that That's I made. True, yeah. So uh, it, it's something that I think maybe trade unions would behoove themselves to take more of an interest in. but. Yeah. Uh, at this point, you know, it's it's the people who have the least representation who have to do the most amount of fighting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There is both an organizational gap there. I think there is also a problem about the bridging the problems across different segments of the working class. Yeah, so Kataraqui Union of Tenants is doing a great job actually to address it. And uh, thanks for joining us. Your community news program here and now is continuing to give you the latest updates. The coming news is related with those who have parking-related problems in Kingston. The city of Kingston introduced a popular application called Honk Mobile that can be downloaded onto phones, tablets, or computers to search for parking spaces, to pay, and to top up. Through Honk Mobile, more than 50 on-street spaces will be available for payment. Also, the application includes designated parking for patients of Cancer Center of Southeastern Ontario. In a press release issued on October 21st, the city said that the users of the application don't have to worry about displaying a paper receipt to parking enforcement officers since the list of the license plates of the vehicles can be seen by the officers real time. So downloading the app from honkmobile.com onto your phones can be a good idea. Another city-related news is about the city council meeting attended by Diane Sachs, internationally renowned environmental lawyer and former environmental commissioner of Ontario. The public interest in Diane Sachs's presentation 
which was titled Climate Changes Everything, was very high. Sachs once again underlined the importance of the municipal decisions to help transition to a low-carbon economy in Kingston. By giving examples of several environmental projects from different cities, such as Cycline Network in Seville, Solar Farm in Atlanta, and 2050 objectives of Boston City to become a carbon-neutral community, Sachs raised the bar for Kingston. With reference to Kingston, Sachs argued that the advantage of the city comes from its combined water, power, and gas services, its mix of urban and rural reach, and highly educated population. Her major emphasis was on the need for an immediate carbon budgeting which, she says, is similar to money budgeting at municipal level. The coming news from here and now, your community news program on CFRC 101.9 FM, is about a theft that injured the charitable organization of Martha's Table, which provides low-cost, nutritious meals to those in need in a safe and accepting environment. On October the 6th, from the trunk of a locked vehicle, a bag containing $1,450 cash and 20 checks had been stolen. Although stop payments were put on the checks, the cash had gone, which is equivalent of 600 meals that Martha's Table can the moral shock that this theft created was big. Rhonda Kenney, the executive director of Martha's Table, described the act of stealing from a charity as a knife to heart and as an act of betrayal. Since the event became public, Martha's Table has been receiving support from the diverse community in Kingston. On Saturday, October the 26th, Kingston Community Concerts and Kingston Community House organized a hot chocolate charity concert for Martha's Table. Also on October the 27th, there was a fundraiser ball sale in Martha's Table. Rhonda Candy comments on this wave of support and solidarity, saying that the theft was devastating, but the community's generosity has turned it around. Having supported the wonderful acts of solidarity, the final piece of local news concerns the statement issued by the Islamic Society of Kingston to condemn the synagogue shootings in Hell, Germany. On the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, a violent act had been perpetrated against the worshippers at a synagogue in Germany. Islamic Society of Kingston not only condemns this heinous act, they also underline their firm stance against anti-Semitism, religious bigotry, xenophobia and hate. In their reference to the Quebec mosque shootings over two years ago, they extend their empathy and sympathies to the families of the victims in Germany. They finalize their statement, calling upon the political leadership to acknowledge the rise of radical nationalism and take necessary steps to prevent its rise. Here and now, your weekly community news program on CFRC 101.9 FM now moves to its selection of international news. One tragic piece of news comes from Essex, Britain, where 39 refugees were found dead in a refrigerated truck. While the mainstream media covered the news as an example of the danger that human smugglers pose for migrants, the critical media outlets mostly pointed to the restrictive immigration laws, highly securitized borders, and cohorted efforts at EU level to build a fortress Europe. 
the records for 2018 could be illuminating in this regard. In 2018, 115,000 attempted to cross the Mediterranean Sea, and an estimated number of 2,275 of them either died or went missing. As borders are increasingly securitized, more people take the most dangerous routes to escape wars, poverty and persecution, putting their lives at risk. Here and now turns its gaze onto Chile, where the protests sparked by the Metro Fair rise have grown over the weeks into a full-fledged nationwide movement. On Friday, October the 25th, more than a million people, backed by a number of major strikes by workers, took to the streets in the Chilean capital of Santiago, uniting in a call for a huge social and political change in the country. Friday's huge demonstration came as a culmination of a week of escalating protests. After a week of brutal repression, President Pinera responded by declaring a state of emergency, sending the army to, onto the streets. Since then, 19 people were killed and 3,100 were arrested. For the Chilean people, the presence of the army on the streets and this brutality evokes memories of dreadful years of the Pinochet dictatorship from 1973 to 1990. In a military coup against the popular unity government by President Salvador Allende, Chilean military had crushed all democratic reforms and 30,000 people were killed by the military coup, including the great people singer Victor Jara. Current president of Chile, Pinera, is a Harvard-trained businessman and one of the richest people in Chile with a fortune of $2.8 billion, according to Forbes. When Pinochet was arrested in in 1998 in London, Pinera was one of the people who described the arrest as an attack on the dignity of Chile. As the resistance of the Chilean people and the workers grieve, Pinera is now forced to retreat. He is restructuring his cabinet, but Chilean people want the fall of his regime and fundamental social change. From the bonfire of Latin America, we are now turning our focus onto Lebanon, where sectarian political establishment and neoliberalism are simultaneously challenged by a nationwide uprising. On October the 27th, Lebanese protesters formed a human chain along the coast from north to south as a symbol of unity against sectarian divide and repression. A 105-mile hand chain stretched from Tripoli to Ture as part of an unprecedented cross-sectarian mobilization. In our studio today, we have Ula Ehrish, master students in the program of global development. We are going to talk about the Lebanese uprising protest, which has been going on since October the 17th. Welcome, Ula. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Ula, uh, my first question is about Lebanese political system. We know that Lebanese political system is arranged along sectarian lines. And sometimes it is also presented as if it is the strength of the country or the reason why different, you know, like sects and communities can live uh, politically uh, like together. And peacefully together. Peacefully yeah. together, definitely. So uh, uh, what does this uprising tell about this arrangement? 
what's happening in Lebanon right now is just to give a bit of context on the sev- on the 17th a lot of people went down to the streets to protest austerity measures and the corruption by the government and when we talk about sectarianism in Lebanon and it's branded as oh it's means of peaceful coexistence in the country that we have so many different sects but they still live together it's not the strength strength of the country necessarily but the strength of the political system because they follow a divide and rule kind of system so they keep people divided and give people the illusion that without them their group wouldn't survive and that's how they make financial gains and elite level bargaining but what people realize now it's it's that our sectarian leader is not the reason we're surviving they're the reason we're barely surviving and it has been a powerful realization to arrive to granted that this is the way we've been living for the past 30 years and um, the second question is about the protests going on across the globe. Uh, we have been witnessing uprisings in different continents, in different countries, very interestingly happening almost simultaneously or in the same temporal zone, we can argue. Uh, in Latin America, we have seen like Ecuador, Puerto Rico, Haiti, and then Chile recently. Yeah. And in Northern Africa, we have seen Algerians, Sudanese, you know, taking to the street and now in Lebanon. So where would you situate Lebanese uprising in this bigger picture? Certainly. So a lot of people have been talking about Lebanon in terms of um, how it's different sects coming together. But what I see happening is it's a formation of a class consciousness. People are correctly identifying that we are the working class and our battle is against the elites of the banks and the rich who are making money out of austerity and neoliberalism. So when we talk about Chile, it was the first experiment with neoliberalism. And now you have a lot of people just protesting the system. It's the same thing happening worldwide. We're just seeing like local variations of this kind of protest on different scales and across different continents. Um, and it kind of asserts that the dominant order, which like that neoliberal order under which we are surviving, um, a lot of people are losing faith in it and trying to recall that power from um, the elites in the government. Uh, my third question would be about refugees and migrants and their participation in the protests. Because in the Middle East, after the civil war in Syria, we have seen refugees like dispersed across different countries. And I am from Turkey. I know like you, you also have a high number of refugees. And uh, uh, the classical uh, political argument, the mainstream political argument usually emphasized the uh, enmity between people. But what we now see is something uh, contesting that perception, isn't it? Of course. So in Lebanon, a lot of the politicians, their to-go-to argument about why um, our economy is like collapsing um, is it's refugees and migrants taking all of our jobs, which is not a it's similar all over. We see it in the global north. We see it in the global south. So a lot of the political leaders are scapegoating migrants and refugees. But what's interesting in the protests, we have those very same um, marginalized migrants and refugees protesting with us and demanding like the fall from the government, which is primarily what we're demanding. So you see domestic workers who are 
are under the kafala system in Lebanon basically ba- barely having any rights, demanding their rights. Um, and you have Syrian refugees b- demanding better work conditions. And most importantly, you have Palestinian refugees. And we have a lot of second generation Palestinians who are um, denied the right to work professional jobs in Lebanon, going down and saying, you know, we might not get our rights, but we're protesting for you. So there's like this solidarity being witnessed on the ground and kind of also emphasizes to me that we're identifying ourselves as the working class, not necessarily with our nationalities and our sects, but where we fall in terms of the economy. Thank you. And my last question would be about the role of the military army, Uh, because what we have seen in the Arab uprising and the uprisings uh, that that have happened over the last two years, at one point, military, you know, like interferes, even the political class is forced to resign. Uh, We kind of see a transition of power from the civilian to military rule. Uh, In Lebanese case, do you think this likelihood is a little or the chances are low? Okay, so this is a very loaded question. I feel like for some time in the beginning of the protests, people were trying to demand that the military takes control. And a lot of people were cynical about it because they were like, didn't you see what happened in Egypt? And maybe it's not the best example. Um, and But later, Lebanon's military is seen as like the least sectarian, very neutral. Um, this can be contested, but the military has been cracking down on the protests. They have been violent against protesters, not necessarily reported by mainstream media, but we see a lot of videos by people on the ground, which is our source of information because it's credible. It's like unbiased. They have been maybe receiving orders. I do not personally separate the military from um, the political system because our current president was a prominent figure in the military. And he is currently the president. So um, there are like thin, like blurred lines in there. Mm-hmm. I personally would not want the military to take control because um, we've seen it happen elsewhere and it's not the best. Okay. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, we have seen like slogans uh, echoing in the Middle East when they started like with down with the regime and right. then they kept saying actually down with the military rule. Exactly. So maybe it's like this constant struggle yeah. uh, for real liberation or democracy, as you sa- already yeah. said. Okay, thank you very much, Ula, thank for joining for the conversation. Me. Okay, perfect. Thank you. just heard weekly updates from Kingston communities. Stay tuned on CFRC 101.9 FM, your campus radio, to hear and know inclusive news from a diverse community. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.